0: This episode of Breaking Banks is brought to you by FIS. From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in the digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually, serves 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks.
2: Is breaking banks well welcome
0: back i'm your host brett king joining us today in the hot seat is scott sanborn he's the ceo of lending club he, he was one of our very first guests on the podcast actually going back um to 2013 um we're coming up on our eighth uh, anniversary scott so that's that's pretty epic right yeah. yeah, you know, Well.
3: And, and, you know, the world has changed just only ever so slightly. In those
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so Scott uh, looks after, of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with Lending Club. It's the only full spectrum fintech marketplace bank at scale. Um, you know, they were one of the first to really show um, strong uh, support in terms of crowdfunding and so forth from big uh, pension funds and so forth. They've helped more than 3 million Americans save billions of dollars since they were founded. Founded in 2007, that was in the early days of fintech before we even called fintech fintech. Um, Scott leads the company's vision of creating unprecedented value to borrowers and investors through lending clubs, online credit marketplace, and constant innovation. And recently, Scott was named Executive Executive of the Year by LendIt. For his leadership and positioning the company for its next phase of growth, and we've been doing this uh, podcast for so long. When Scott first joined us, he wasn't the CEO; he was the CMO. So um, he's gone up in the world since then. Scott, welcome, formal officially to the show. Back to the show.
3: Yeah, well, great, great to be here again, Brett, and good to reconnect. Uh,
0: you know, when you started, you were a startup and obviously, you know, you guys have been through the IPO and so forth, but from being one of the founding team and being with, um, you know, Lending Club for so long, you know, has it changed the culture of the organization or do you feel like it's it's just, there's obviously more admin work and, and you know, uh, being a publicly listed company, but culturally, how's the organization adapted?
3: Yeah, of course, um, you know, it isn't, despite what anyone may tell you, I don't, I don't think it's really possible to, you know, when I joined the company, it was 35 people, roughly, uh, and, you know, we're, we're well over a uh, thousand today. You, you can't have the same culture as a private 30-person company, as a, uh, pu- as a public and now uh, directly supervised entity. But what you know what you can keep and what we have kept is our values. And this dates way back to 2012 when we were at that stage of hyper growth and you know people that I didn't know were hiring people I didn't know, that were hiring people I didn't know. And I, I, you know, I was concerned about how do we preserve the culture. And I was talking to some advisors and colleagues and friends and saying, you know, what do you do? And the answer that I got, which really resonated, was document what your values are and stick to those. The culture will evolve around it, but if you Mm. keep your values straight, the company will feel the same. And so we did that. We put on a piece of paper our core values. Uh, We've updated them only twice since then. And if you saw the values from 2012 and the values from 2020, you would say, oh, I recognize it. It's the same company. Um, so even as the operations have changed, the way things get done have, have morphed, what makes a lending clubber is is really stayed consistent all the way through.
0: So you guys call yourselves clubbers. That's right. That's funny. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, uh, that well, that that's uh, we a yeah, whole lot of connotations from that. Um, but um, now you've, of course, upped the ante on the complexity by buying Radius Bank, um, you know, First of all, we, you know, this is a bit of a trend right now. We're seeing, you know, we just saw Grab um, do a SPAC, you know, a, a very successful SPAC in in Singapore. Um, Gojek acquired a bank in in their market. Of course, you know, we know Google's had a bank for, for a long time. Um, but, um, you know, talk, talk me through that process in terms of the realisation when when you decided on this and what, what was the real driver behind this.
3: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's not a decision you undertake lightly. Um, it's a it's a big commitment, but uh, I would say it is not hyperbole to call it really transformative, just on you know multiple levels, both financially for the company, but but as importantly, strategically in terms of what we can do for the customers and. And, you know, we're, we're clearly seeing the trend and, and and the reason we're seeing is, is it once you achieve a certain scale, it just makes so much sense. Um, so like the on the financial side, um, mm-hmm. we are, you know, really changing the business. We're, we're eliminating a ton of costs. We, you know, as as one of the the, the largest unsecured lender in the country, we were paying issuing banks to issue loans on our behalf. On average, that was 20 million bucks over the last couple of years per year. Uh, So that cost goes away. We can issue our own loans. Um, We had warehouse lines, you know, pre-COVID about a billion dollars worth that we were paying, you know, call it 330 basis points on. Uh, We're now swapping those out for deposits at 35 basis points. So a 90% reduction in funding costs. So that's on that kind of cost elimination side. And then on the uh, you know revenue addition side, we now get a new revenue stream, which is interest income. Instead of selling 100% of our loans, which is uh, what our model was, we'll keep an average of roughly 20% and we'll earn the interest income against that. So it's a whole new revenue stream uh, that is a more kind of resilient and stable stream. So that's that's just the financial side and it's extremely compelling. And then of course you get the strategic side, which is we can just do way more for our customers. We've got more than 3 million uh, customers we call members. They wanna do more with us. We've been helping them. Uh, you know, We've made access to credit really frictionless um and they you know but that's all we've been doing is helping them with lending um and now we're going to be able to help them with spending and saving so there's there's just a, a ton there it's no surprise uh, others are looking to do it we're glad we have it done because wanting to do it and getting it done as i'm sure you've seen are two very very different things and it's taken many players, you know, three, four years to get it uh, across the line. And we were able to get this transaction closed in, in you know, 12 months.
0: Yeah, because the obvious question was, you know, you partially answered it already. Um, you know, your, your business is a marketplace. And so you don't want to take too much of the lending off the top. But, um, you know, I mean, how much are you lending annually these years? Because I would imagine you're probably lending more than most banks in the U.S.,
3: well, we're, you know, the our unsecured lending was pre-COVID. We did about 12 billion annually. We pulled way right. back uh in, in COVID just due to the nature Makes of the marketplace. Uh but we've uh, put out guidance this year for about 45% growth in lending, 55 in in revenue. But the I mean the what we're looking to do is really get the benefits of both sides, like versus banks to your point, we can grow more rapidly. Uh, We can, we're not limited by our own capital because we have other people providing capital. And our, Mm -hmm. our growth is gonna be fueled by both the interest income on loans we keep, as well as the fee income from loans we sell, which will generate more capital and allow us to grow. And we're more efficient than banks at customer acquisition because we've got a national footprint and a broad spectrum of approval because we're not just approving bank quality loans. We're approving a full range of consumers uh, and the loans that are not bank quality wouldn't go on a bank balance sheet typically We're selling to asset managers, hedge funds and others. Um, And obviously versus banks, we don't have that legacy infrastructure with branches and the old cores, but versus the fintechs, we're bringing uh, a much more resilient model, right? Access to stable, low cost funding with a recurring sustained revenue stream, which is just going to make us more profitable. So
0: now banks, of course, do the whole wholesale piece where they use lending providers, but you've got that advantage in that you've got a much bigger crowd behind you in terms of support for that. And so, you know, very interesting ways to de-risk and spread risk and all of those sort of things that, um, you know, a, a, a wholesale lending provider may not necessarily have. And as, as far as I'm aware, it's only you and Zopa who, who have sort of now got models that offer traditional bank lending like that, Right. Yeah, I mean, the it other... May be, it may be Grameen, um, you know, but...
3: The other yeah. advantage, I'd, I'd say, uh, is our superpower is that we're market leader in, like, amongst the most profitable segments of lending, right? Unsecured consumer is highly, highly profitable. So that's the financial side of it. The strategic side is it also happens, you know, our core value proposition is, hey, Americans... For the half of you who didn't pay off your credit card last month you have a loan it's a crappy one let us save you money it's going to take less than two minutes and put money in your pocket
0: yeah have have your have your interest rate
3: so so we're basically creating this we're basically creating at, at this massive scale a huge affinity and connection to customers while generating a really profitable asset so you know, coming at you know a lot of the people coming at innovation and banking have been coming at this from the deposit side. We're coming at it from the lending side, uh, and you know, as you know, that's where the money is primarily made in banking. So we're bringing mm-hmm. you know this this um, real scale in a very profitable part of the business and a sizable customer base to innovate from that side. And now we're adding with the acquisition of Radius, we're actually not just acquiring a charter; we're acquiring real capabilities. They've right. Got a really, uh, really powerful award-winning checking account that is, again, it's directly on strategy. They're, the checking account that the rewards checking were acquiring, the basic product is we're going to reward you for spending money you have by using your debit card, not reward you for going into debt. <laughs> Uh, this so this is directly, it's directly absolutely
0: brand, something I support. You know, I, I'm on the board of the Financial Health Network. Um, but this whole thing about you know spend more money and get cash back or get airline miles, you know, it's it's almost as if after the pandemic, that that's that can't really be a core strategy. You know, the job of a bank or an institution like yourselves should be first and foremost to help customers manage their money better, right?
3: Yeah, one of the things we talk a lot about is by setting up the incentives of the company to be aligned with the outcome of the customer. Um, And, you know, uh, there are so many places in banking where that just isn't the case, right? And banks become addicted to the income generated from things that are actually not reflecting positive customer outcomes. And so going into it clear-eyed with what you're trying to do for your customer and what we're trying to do is – you know, take it one step at a time. Lower their cost of debt, which cr- will create an opportunity for them to have savings. So now we can help them actually accomplish savings, and then over time it'll be to grow that into to you know uh, setting aside money f- for the future. But the the simple thing we want to be able to do now is you come in because you know whatever you, we refinanced your car loan, we saved you eighty bucks. Imagine a world where we say, hey, we can either have you keep driving the same car, pay off the loan in the same time period, and save eighty bucks a month? We can lower your payment by that much. Or what if we said, look, how about we lower your payment by forty bucks, and the other forty bucks we put into a savings account?
0: Awesome. By the time
3: yeah. you're you're finished paying off your loan, you know you've got five or six grand set aside, uh, you know, to nice. uh, to act as a buffer against future shocks. And again, what's aligned here is because you have that in a savings account with Lending Club, we can lend against that and we can earn money off of that uh, and not have to earn money off of, you know, whatever, having you need another personal loan.
0: So let's talk about the the sort of portfolio of loans that you've got. Uh, I remember um, you know we talked back um, you know a few years ago. You talked about debt consolidation being one of the primary uh, use cases scenario. But um, you know we see a lot of new activity in the space. Buy now, pay later, that sort of stuff. So um, you know, a um, you know you're trying to look for a different mix of, of uh, loan types. Um, you know, and and um, you know how do you see the the buy now, pay later Sort of shifting, um, you know, people's use of lending away from credit cards and under sort of uh, you know different different modalities.
3: Yeah. So our you know, core use case, brand value proposition, what we're still bringing in most customers for is refinancing their existing debt at a lower cost and saving them money. Like I said, that creates kind of a customer for life. We have really high MPS scores and then our goal is to, to do more for them over time. Uh, that said, you know, half of our customers come back to us within five years to do business with us again. Um, you know, based on, their positive experience with the first loan. And there we see the use case start to shift. Case one might have been right. credit card consolidation. Case two might be I'm adding a deck onto the back of the house or I want to buy a hot tub. Um, so we do see that and are agnostic. You know, our, our goal is to make it easy for people to make smart choices with their money. Um, and purchase finance can be a smart choice where um, you know, in cases where we have, for example, a, a, a decent sized uh, medical uh, business where for purposes that aren't covered by insurance, think about fertility treatments, bariatric surgery, these big ticket items that aren't covered by insurance, uh, we, we have a role. When it comes to the broader growth of buy now, pay later, I would say we look at it, it is an alternative to credit cards and you know, especially younger consumers are showing their reluctance to get trapped in that minimum payment cycle, but we view it as an opportunity, both an opportunity for us to extend where appropriate to our existing customers, and still as an opportunity for refinance. Because if you look at those on average, where they're charging an interest rate, uh, which is a, a decent uh, percentage of the overall volume in that space, you're looking at rates in the mid twenties, right? And uh, you know, when you go to someone and say, "Hey, if this treadmill isn't," you know. this treadmill is 50 bucks a month. You're kind of a little bit masking the true cost to the consumer. And it's an opportunity for us as those things build up to say to them, Hey, Mm. are you paying attention to what's happening over here? Uh, You're not paying a price that's reflective of your credit. You're paying a price that's reflective of the convenience uh, of of enabling your purchase.
0: Yeah. There's some early evidence that people in, um, in Europe, uh, you know we're not aware they had to pay back the loans that they took with the buy now pay later stuff so a little bit of uh, where the friction the lower friction may be a little too low and um, when it comes to uh, financial health uh, uh, considerations um, but it certainly wouldn't help the it wouldn't um, hurt the, uh, the the valuation right to to have a sort of buy now pay later platform
3: well uh, you know, Certainly, there's a lot of growth in the space. It was very much accelerated due to COVID. Um, And uh, as I mentioned, we we are actually active in the space. And we're active before the term itself was as cool as it is today. Exactly.
0: And let's talk about that, you know, um, for, for you, um, you know, you've been in this since the very beginning of, of uh, the fintech revolution. Now it's, now fintechs are household names, not only in, in the US, but globally. Um, so first of all, um, you know, do, do you still think of yourself as a fintech or do you think of yourself as a listed company or a bank? Um, and do you think that the the term fintech is is means different things now versus what it did in the past or or how would you how would you articulate what fintech is to someone who doesn't know for example
3: yeah i mean as, as i'm sure you would agree things are getting really really murky out there and, and and gray i mean to the question what are we are we a fintech or a bank my answer is yes Uh, We're we're obviously both of those because we're issuing our own loans and we take deposits and we're a fintech because we're branchless, we're digitally native, you know, we've got a culture of innovation. You remain
0: tech first, regardless of what you call yourselves, right?
3: Exactly, exactly. Um, And, you know, I think the... The space is continuing to evolve. At a, you know, I th- it's exciting to see because retail banking is one of the last frontiers to be really disrupted by technology, uh, to the benefit of the consumer. And it's really happening now, right? You're seeing consumer expectations for what what is possible being quickly reset for the better, and you're seeing consumers respond, right? They're voting with uh, they're voting with their
1: wallets.
0: Absolutely. We've certainly seen that during COVID. Um, so let's talk about product-wise. Product, product wise. You, You've spoken a little bit about, um, you know, your, your position you've taken um, throughout the pandemic, but has it changed any of the product uh, direction, you think? You know, more of a focus on, um, you know, because people are going to be long term having you know financial difficulties or you know economic challenges as a result of pand- the pandemic even after we've all been vaccinated and 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 covid's uh, tamed there's still going to be the economic issues to deal with so did that change your trajectory at all you think
3: i mean our core consumer uh came into this pretty well prepared in terms of the household balance sheet and they've actually weathered it quite well. It's one of the, in the, in the column of, uh, never waste a good, good crisis. You know, one of the big questions that had always hung over Lending club's head was, "Oh, great, You're category leader in the fastest growing category of credit, but you've never been through a recession. We have no idea how these loans, and for context, when I joined the company, the annual originations for personal loans was ten billion. and pre-covid, that number was like one hundred and forty billion and we alone were twelve. So there's this question, how are these loans going to hold up? And what we saw was really, really well. Uh, and in fact, uh, both our internal data and third-party data from TransUnion showed. And you know, one, of, there's lots of debate to be had about the impact of stimulus and how much did that do to support credit? Because credit, more broadly, held up pretty well. So what I'm referring to is what is our place in the payment hierarchy? A lot of people said it's going to be at the bottom. You already gave them the money. That why would they bother paying you back? You're going to be down there uh, with student loans, and that was actually not the case at all. In fact. Our consumers prioritized us even above their credit cards uh, and repaying of the loan. So I'd call that a really big check. It's a validation of how much they value the relationship with Lending Club. Uh, and in terms of you know what's next for us, g- given that our our big focus is going to be taking taking the capabilities we now have acquired with Radius and integrating those with our offering in ways I just mentioned. I mean, imagine a world where hey, I'm going to save you you know, you're paying 17, 18% on your credit card. How about I give you 12% on uh, a personal loan instead? And you know what? If you deposit into a Lending Club checking account, here's what else you get, right? A lower rate, right. double rewards, whatever. Okay, yeah, like yeah, yeah. integrated offering, but then yeah. also gives us- The lower
0: us right thing is going to be interesting.
3: Yeah, it gives us more insight as, you know, we were talking in kind of the closed session up front, more insight into your spending, your income, and help us help you, Stay on track with what you're trying to accomplish, which is get out of debt.
0: Now, just a couple of weeks ago, you had your earnings report. Anything, um, you know, you can sort of cover quickly on that before we, we wrap up?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for us, for us, the, the big thing is we're, you know, we were in a corporate equivalent of shelter in place last year. We basically pulled back on originations partly due to COVID, but also we really uh, wanted to be positioned to have our capital unencumbered so that when a bank approval could come through, we would be positioned to acquire and capitalize the bank. Uh, Now that that's happened as of February 1st, Um, We are very excited to be back, uh, you know, back in growth mode and back competing and, you know, look forward to delivering a lot of a lot of value for shareholders and for our customers.
0: So just, uh, you know, we've got a minute, minute left to wrap up. So, um, you know, first of all, uh, where can people find out more about Lending Club and, you know, what should we be looking out for for the rest of the year?
3: So, where they can find out more is uh, obviously on our website, or Lending feel Club free to com. yeah, or feel free to reach out to our uh, head of, of IR or our investor relations at lendingclub.com. And you know what you can expect from us right now is company getting back into growth mode. What you're going to see is us, you know, generating a significant loan volume and taking an increasing share of that on our balance sheet, which will drive our our earnings. And you'll see us start to uh, introduce new banking services for our customers that help us do more for them, uh, while also have the nice benefit of driving our business
0: fantastic well you know you you've you've stuck with us through the last eight years as well and you've been on the show multiple times i'm delighted to see um you know that things are going so well and that you you out you you got through your recession with flying colors and um you know all, all the best to you scott thanks for thanks for being back on the show
3: all right great catching up again brett and i look forward to seeing the new
1: book
0: very much great all right guys uh, we'll be uh, we'll be back with you shortly Since we focus on how banking and finance are transforming, I'd like to talk to you about three letters, F-I-S. From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in a digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually. It serves over 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks. They have the unmatched expertise needed to advance your business. Go to FSI Global to learn more.
3: Breaking Banks Europe podcast brings you European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators, and leaders all innovating in the rapidly evolving fintech scene. Hi, I'm Matteo Rezzi. I am Ajit Lepati. This is Matthias kroner I'm Megan Johnson.
0: I am Paolo Cironi.
3: I'm Nina Mohanty. Join us and some of the world's most well known hosts and influencers in fintech as we bring you insights into European fintech. Find us wherever you normally listen to your podcasts or at
1: provoke.fm. How did Atlanta become this payments processing powerhouse? Yeah. So um, so thanks again. Yes. Tra- Transaction Alley is the term that um, has been used by uh, FinTech Atlanta, the uh, Technology Association, Georgia, um, the groups behind uh, spearheading a lot of the economic development um, around uh, the FinTech world, uh, culminating with our FinTech South Conference here. And uh, one of the reasons why that, um, that is such a um, important moniker for this city and really for the state, uh, really is a, a long legacy that has to do uh, to a large extent with Atlanta having been this uh, original transportation hub, um the the you know one of the original names of Atlanta was Terminus it was where the rails uh, rail lines terminated here in Atlanta and the evolution of of telecommunications and data communications around the world and around the country to a large extent exploited the right-of-way on the rail lines so Atlanta Really became a hub from a from a telecommunications perspective. Uh, Bell South, AT&T, long lines, a lot of the uh, mobile, wireless, and digital carriers. So a heavy concentration of of telecommunications, data communications, transportation capabilities up through the uh, the '60s and '70s, and at the same time, we ended up as uh, a pretty strong banking community with some some pretty large uh, correspondent banking operations And in the early days of correspondent banking. Uh, with CNS, uh, Trust Company, First Atlanta. You, you basically are building big mainframe systems and sharing a lot of that technology and capabilities with smaller banks around the country that you're processing on the behalf of. Uh, you add uh, check processing, payments and transaction processing, and ACH and credit card, and debit card. And the next thing you know, you got a pretty robust banking, data processing technology world. Fast forward to the evolution of really the PC world. Uh, We have one of the world's preeminent uh, engineering and research uh, universities, uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, uh, spawned a lot of really cool technology early on in those days. Uh, we ended up with IBM's mid-range division um, headquartered here for a long period of time. So a lot of the, a lot of the legacy core processors in the banking space, uh, were tightly connected to that IBM world around the System 3x uh, AS400. You know, Jack Henry Cis 2020, the Horizon product. that's, that's part of FIS. Um, so you had this real interesting dynamic happening here, uh, the the birth of the Equifaxes, uh, what became Equifax's card processing platform, came out of First Atlanta, became First Bank Card, became Equifax, was spun out, becomes Surdigy, becomes FIS so there's this you know this bubbling history that's been there forever and that innovation that uh that that convergence of of technology uh, of communication of banking knowledge that was here that really fostered a very robust healthy uh, group of entrepreneurs you know starting in the 70s and 80s uh, stockholder systems, SSI, which which beget check Three, you know the the early origins of a lot of Pfizer's uh, business came out of First Financial Management. Uh, when uh, when Amex spun off First Data, a large part of it was here. Western Union ended up uh, here with uh, with uh, its acquisition for First Financial Management, and so the underpinnings of that, the entrepreneurs, uh, some of our. You know, some of our legendary uh, fintech practitioners uh, grew out of this just really, really cool thing happening. And and a lot of us just happened to be in school or starting in our banking careers when all this was happening. So we got a chance to really see it up close and personal. And, and you know, fast forward to 2020, we have... I would say more professionals, more entrepreneurs who have a, a deep rooted understanding of banking, banking technology, transaction processing, credit card processing, really the underpinnings of money movement, which is really the thread that is fintech that flows through so many, so many businesses. So, you know, Delta, Coca Cola, UPS. Um, all of them benefit by a lot of this uh, fintech knowledge that has been here for 40 plus years.
2: That was Charles Potts, Chief Innovation Officer at the Independent Community Bankers of America on Atlanta's rich history as a financial services hub and a catalyst in creating innovative tech companies and thriving small businesses. We've also seen the rise of cities like Austin, Charlotte, and the Research Triangle as important centers for fintech and financial services. Yet in a post-COVID world, the Southern United States is facing unprecedented challenges to support and grow small businesses. Beth Bafford is vice president of syndications and strategy at Calvert Impact Capital and an architect of the new SOAR fund. That's S-O-A-R for the Southern Opportunity and Resilience Fund. Beth, what is the SOAR fund and what's the purpose?
4: Thanks so much for having us. The SOAR fund is really a collaboration of local community lenders who have come together to support small businesses throughout this economic recovery. Uh, So uh, the The community lenders have really come together to say, you know, we think think that this is a region that needs attention. We think this is a region that has been historically disinvested, Um, but we see an enormous amount of opportunity and potential uh, if we have the resources to support uh, the region's entrepreneurs. And that's not just the entrepreneurs that are located in those city centers that you mentioned, the Atlantas and the Charlottes. It's looking at the rural communities uh, that are around the suburban communities, uh, the, the agricultural innovation that's happening, the, uh, the, the industries that are outside of those urban cores. Uh, there's an enormous amount of talent, opportunity and potential there, uh, but there's unequal access to capital support to really help entrepreneurs grow. And so this fund and program was really pulled together to, to to say that, you know, we, we want to see an equitable recovery this time around, uh, unlike coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, and how do we pool our, our talents? How do we pool our resources to ensure that that's the case?
2: So how are the banks and non-bank lenders participating in, in the SOAR fund?
4: Yeah. So it's really led by non-bank lenders who are based in these communities. Um, So these are a group of local community lenders uh, certified by the U.S. Treasury Department as Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs, Um, who really have the ability to uh, provide high touch support and services to entrepreneurs to support business owners with both uh, support, assistance, strategy development uh, and help, as well as affordable and flexible financial products. And I think that's really the magic that happens at the CDFI level, at the non-bank level in these communities, um, because they are able to be more flexible, more supportive, more hands-on in really helping uh, entrepreneurs grow. Um, but the banks play a really important role too. So uh, the banks are, are bringing the capital in the structure um, that is being blended and uh, with philanthropic capital uh, to create a, uh, a, a scaled loan purchase facility, uh, in, in fancy financial terms, uh, that essentially allows those community lenders to do a lot more lending uh, than than they could otherwise do. And so the banks and other other corporations are coming together to provide the capital that those community lenders can then lend in their communities.
2: I was just going to say it's really a multiplying effect then of them being able to to work together and using the CDFI structure.
4: Exactly, exactly. So the banks and the corporations are the are the enablers, uh, the CDFIs are the distribution.
2: So how does this fit in with uh, the uh, Paycheck Protection Program and some of the other governmental programs that have been launched over the past year or so?
4: So the, the Paycheck Protection program or PPP and other government programs uh, were really built to uh, be immediate relief uh, for small businesses. They were They were built to replace revenue that they otherwise couldn't earn because their customers stopped coming or because their their doors were shut. Uh, that was extremely important and critical funding. Um, We all know those programs had their limitations. So the SOAR fund was really built to, as we shift from immediate relief to long-term recovery. Uh, and it's really about access to credit for businesses, businesses who might uh, have a path to reopening, but really need to invest in uh, certain things to, to, to do so. They need a new HVAC system so that their filtering is, is okay. They need PPE for their employees. They need plexiglass for their retail layout. Um, all of those things that are requirements to, to open cost money and a lot of business owners, particularly the smallest business owners, have depleted their reserves uh, you know, six, nine months ago and don't have the capital to invest in, in those expenses to reopen safely. And so this is really making sure that those business owners have access to credit, can smooth out their revenues in the, in the early months of the recovery uh, so that they can get back on their feet and, and get back to operating successfully.
2: Well, you did a nice job there kind of explaining the difference between the short term um, emergency use of PPP and longer term. What is longer term? What kind of time frame do you you expect um, these kind of funds are going to be used for?
4: So, you know, if we're learning lessons from the last recovery, from the recovery out of the Great Recession, um, we saw a we, we did not see commercial lending rebound for 10 years after the the depth of the great recession Um, so we need to take the long game here if we expect to see an equitable economic recovery so we're focused right now we're focused on getting uh, loans in the hands of small business owners today and tomorrow and for the next six to nine months but we're also really building this to be a program that lasts Uh, throughout this economic recovery. Uh, So to really try to change the paradigm for many small business owners who lacked access to credit, pre-COVID and uh, need it now and will need it going forward. Uh, We feel like if we could really boost the capacity of CDFIs and boost the role that community finance plays in the broader financial system, um, we can see uh, much greater distribution of of opportunity, of entrepreneurship, uh, of business ownership, uh, which we think, you know, importantly helps address some of these deeply ingrained issues particularly in the south of lack of economic mobility and the racial wealth gap uh, which are you know we're, we're all trying to solve
2: well there's a couple of things i want to follow up uh there one is i want to come back and talk about why the south in particular there, there's some kind of unique um uh situations there that i i think you can speak to but um also the, what you're talking about and and focusing on longer term I mean, it kind of just exposes some of the structural flaws that we have in the traditional banking system, right? I mean, the CD, CDFI program has only been around, you know, 25, 30 years, something like that. And, um, and, and it probably is time for another evolution uh, around that. We're, maybe you can speak even just outside of the SOAR fund, but just with from your perspective, what are those gaps and, and what are the kinds of things that we need to provide? I mean, the, the heartbeat of America is well, maybe Chevrolet, uh, but, but it's really the, the, the small business. And um, so any kind of program that's helping small business, I think, is really good for the economy as a whole. Um, what are the what do those gaps look like? And, and you know, maybe you can speak to how SORA is trying to fill that, but there's probably even some needs beyond this. Right.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's really what um, what I see as one of the silver linings of the covid crisis uh, is that it just created the broad awareness that our banking system has moved so far away from local small businesses, from local communities uh, over the last 15 years, if not more. and so much of, of, of the economy is disconnected from a bank relationship. I mean, I think that's really what PPP showed us um, and, and, and kind of brought to light. Um, I, I always give the example, I have uh, a lot of small business owners in my family. My cousin is, owns a running store uh, in, in Baltimore and he had a banking relationship with a local bank for many years uh, that helped him provide access to credit to get a loan. Uh, and that bank was purchased by another bank uh, we've see all seen the massive m a activity in the banking industry uh, and so the the relationship manager went from someone in Baltimore to someone in upstate New York and with that he lost the ability to pick up the phone and call his banker and explain if there was you know more than a typical rain in a month and he had who was delayed on his payment or if he had to restructure his payment structure all the things that were so typical in banking and lending um, that was relationship-based uh, for so many years has just shifted dramatically as the banking system is consolidated and uh, we've really lost a good number of our local community lenders. And so, you know, the, the this is a moment where I feel like where we have the opportunity to kind of look at the banking system as a whole, understand where the gaps are um, and try to figure out how do we fill those with technology, with local lenders, um, with different models, um, so that we are providing access to quality and affordable financial products to entrepreneurs and individuals um, in a way that is is much more equitable.
2: Well, and even outside of the consolidation and the proverbial big bank out of town now has made it harder, there are still a lot of community-based organizations that have all the best intentions in the world. They really care about their communities and really want to serve them. Um, but some of these structural issues around the capital and the regulation and all of that just really makes it tough for them to have a lot of flexibility. And so programs like CDFIs and what you're doing now with the store fund really helps to fill in a lot of those gaps. And I and I just feel like um, th- this still doesn't do it, right? We still have a lot of uh, lot of gaps and a lot of uh, room to fill in uh, so that the banks can um, live up to their intentions and be able to, to serve those small customers um, even better.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where we've really been trying to um, push on um, how do you look at some of these models and how do you create a, a kind of step change in scale for CDFIs you know CDFIs are uh incredible organizations um, i think the entire industry of loan funds is one ninth of the size of JP Morgan right i mean it is it is uh, on a, on the scale of the financial system it, they are small um, uh, but they're extremely important uh the role that they play that, you, that as you mentioned in being able to be flexible uh, to be supportive to provide services um, is extremely important, particularly for uh, the most kind of distressed and, and under-resourced communities. And so, how do we help them with the help of technology, with the help of, of public sector investment, um, to really play a bigger role in our banking system and uh, and and serve a you know, 10x, 20x, 100x uh, the number of clients than they serve today.
2: Well, and go back and talk a little bit more about why the Southern U.S. What is it in particular about the the, the South that drives not only the need but how this will will benefit beyond the South?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the need is enormous. I mean, I think the what's really interesting is that we've been digging into kind of the the access to resources across asset types in the South and they are chronically underfunded across each type. So if you look at bank assets in the region, uh, significantly less than a, a lot of their peers across the other regions of the US, venture capital is unbelievably limited. Um, there's, there's some strength in, in, in uh, areas like Atlanta um, and like Charlotte. Uh, Mississippi got less than $8 million of total venture capital investment uh, in all of 2019. Um, right, I mean, it is it is astonishing the lack of, of of capital that's going into the region. Um, uh, then you look at philanthropy, uh, there's significantly less philanthropic activity uh, in the South, particularly when you look at philanthropic support going to kind of structural economic challenges, um, where it's I think 33 cents on the dollar uh, in other regions. And so it's, it's a region that it just is, has been historically under invested. And so if we can, bring new resources, if we can highlight the opportunity and potential in this region uh, and show that that with intentional focus and support uh, really led by local organizations, uh, you can start to move the needle on the challenges like economic mobility and uh, the percentage of the population that lives in a distressed community you can do that anywhere, and I think that's really what uh, we're excited about—excited uh, about bringing this model to a region of the U.S. where um, where there is no lack of talent, but but a huge lack of resources, um, and showing that we can really kind of turn on this incredible network of local community lenders to uh, to to see a difference um, across the whole system, across the whole ecosystem.
2: Well, in in many ways, some of the things that you talk about are true across the rest of the nation and, and really across the world, right? We've got pockets of, um, hyper development, and, and expansion of wealth, um, right alongside areas of, uh, very dramatic need. And in the U S the South continues to be one of the fastest growing, um, regions in the country in terms of population growth, but it's also home to eight of the 10 States with the lowest household income. And five of the 10 states with the greatest level of economic inequality. So that um, those trends that we're seeing everywhere are maybe even a little bit more pronounced in the South.
4: Yeah, and I think the real challenge of the region is how do you leverage that top line economic growth, that population growth and and the kind of purchasing power that's coming with it to benefit the people who have been there? How do you support the entrepreneurs in the communities that grew up there to, to kind of access some of that growth and, and, and start to make a difference in economic mobility. Um, and I think that is, uh, you know, we feel like entrepreneurship and small business ownership is, a, is one of the pathways to doing that um, so that you know, a, a restaurant outside of Durham, um, uh, owned by a family that's been there for you know a hundred years, um, can really benefit from all the people moving to Durham, um, and 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 fr- from that that kind of top line economic growth. And I think. Um, because it, you know, if, if all of the, that is just benefiting the transplants, I think we will have failed. Um, and I think that's really the challenge that, that we all have and why we feel like it's so important to be working with, uh, with and through local organizations who really understand the, the context and the character of, of their communities.
2: Is the SOAR fund um, positioned to help formation of new businesses as well, or is it mainly focused on helping existing businesses?
4: It is, that was actually a change we made as we were designing this over the last uh, six months or so. Um, It was initially just for existing businesses who had experienced a direct impact from COVID. Um, But then we started to see these trends of new business starts of entrepreneurs who had shut down businesses that were just not viable, who started new businesses in the same industry that were more more COVID friendly. And we didn't want to leave those folks out. And so uh, there is a portion, each of the local community lenders can lend up to 15% of their allocation for lending uh, to newer businesses um, so that we are also supporting those new businesses. And these are not, not businesses that would meet kind of a venture capital um kind of uh, profile right these are businesses that need access to uh, a working capital loan to kind of get up and running to build inventory to start you know to, to invest in marketing and and to start uh, start start up um we I think there will be more venture capital programs coming to the region as well um, but this is really for that small business that that needs a loan and is disqualified from pretty much every other source um, because they're they're new.
2: Yeah, I think that's another area um, um, where we just talk about the structural impediments, right? If, if you know, wanting to start a new business and, and lack of capital is always a major hurdle. And if you're not a part of uh, that network coming from a rich family or went to the right school and knew all the right VCs, uh, it, it can be a real challenge. So uh, that uh, I'm glad to hear that that's a part of this. Well, where can uh, people learn more about the SOAR fund and uh, apply for uh, a a loan from the program?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to thesoarfund.org. So the s-o-a-r fund.org. That website has uh, all of the uh, eligibility requirements for the program, uh, the loan terms that are being offered. Uh, And then it's a very simple uh, pre-application. So you fill out uh, uh, kind of 15 questions about your business, uh, your operations, and based on your location and uh, and, and the answers to those questions, you're matched with your local community lender. Uh, And then once matched with your local community lender, uh, they'll take it from there, they'll reach out to you, they'll um, uh, gather documentation, go through the underwriting and really provide the support that the business owner needs to, to get access to credit. Um, so we're we're live and, and accepting applications now and and really excited to be um, to be offering this program uh, across the region where where we see you know so much potential.
2: Well, we're excited to uh, see how it goes. So keep us posted, and um, we'll, maybe we'll have you back to update us on uh, how we've been able to um, advance some of the objectives that um, the SOAR fund was designed to do. So Beth, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much. Appreciate, appreciate uh, all you do and, and love listening to the podcast. So thank you.
2: That's it
0: for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform
2: or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.